there's nothing more emblematic of strength. There's no greater example of being a warrior than being able to look within, recognize you need to get the help you need, and then actually doing it. That's strength. That's being a warrior. Welcome to the Transition Drill Podcast. As members of the first responder and military communities, we need to be planning today for our transition from these careers. Because unfortunately, as many have experienced, these careers can tell us the ride is over before we're ready for it to be done. My name is Paul Pantani and I've spent the past 30 years in law enforcement, working in various assignments and promoting through the ranks of leadership. With the help of my guests, who like you are either former or current military members or first responders, the goal of this podcast is to provide you with information to help you in your planning. But just as important, we can't forget to take care of ourselves today. So I'm also going to have guests who are going to talk about how to be more physically and mentally fit. Before we get into this week's guest, I need a few favors because I can't grow this without your help. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the podcast. I also need your assistance getting the word out. If you enjoy the podcast, please spread the word to anyone you think will enjoy it also. But what I need the most is your feedback and input. Let me know what you like, what you don't like, and any suggestions you have for guest selection. Please go to the podcast webpage at transitiondrillpodcast.com and send me a direct message. Also, if you'd leave me a rating and any comments on iTunes, I would truly appreciate it. Thank you. Joining me this week is Nick Wilson. Nick spent 13 years as a police officer, but some work-related injuries and his own battles with trauma, which ultimately led to him self-medicating, he had to medically retire. But not wanting to turn his back on the profession he loves, Nick founded the Resiliency Project to get rid of the stigmas of asking for help and to give back to first responders, so no one else has to suffer in silence as he did. You can find more information on the web at theresiliencyproject.info and on Instagram at theresiliencyproject. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Let's get into episode 21. When you started the Resiliency Project, did you ever have any idea that it would grow as much as it's been and to the point where you're basically on the road almost every day of your life, it seems like? Never, no. And it's, uh, it's been a blessing because we've been able to really connect with a lot more people who need our help. How are you able to get through, well, like we talked previously, I'm sure hearing these stories every day almost makes you relive your trauma. Is that an, an issue for you? Or what are you doing to keep yourself wealth even through all this? Yeah, that's a good question. And it, uh, I think definitely the stories that we hear uh, certainly impact me. Uh, my heart breaks for those that do reach out for us. And yeah, some of them are very triggering and can bring me back. So my self-care plan, especially with the increase of uh, peer support calls that we've gotten, uh, has really uh, tripled. <laughs> so I, the things that I do for self-care uh, are quintessential uh, for me because uh, I'm not going to ever go backwards. And now that I know what I need to do to be healthy and, you know, mentally and emotionally and spiritually sound. Um, I have to be able to, to practice what I preach. And so, you know, I go on three, four walks a day uh, and have a whole self-care plan that has kicked into high gear, especially in the last year with everything that we're seeing and the stories that we're hearing. Um, it is hard. And I think that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I, I have to put the oxygen mask on myself before I can help anybody. And uh, really, it's my team and my fiance and my own 
you know, family social structure that has really helped me uh, because I, I wouldn't be able to do anything without the team, my fiance, fiance, my family. And so, um, you know, a combination between my self-care plan and my, you know, own support group is what's keeping me going. Well, you bring up a great point for all of us. Our, our mental health is, is a component of those that we have around us. And if we don't have a strong team around us that are encouraging us and trying to make us better, I hate to say it, we're almost destined to fail. 100%. One thing I've learned is that, uh, you know, there's no magic pill. And so um, when I was going through a trauma retreat, you know, the one thing that really stuck with me is that there's no better way to heal than to have a healthy family or social structure, uh, people around you to lift you up, um, to motivate you, to be there for you uh, when it gets hard. And so, uh, I'm so grateful for that. Uh, it's not something that I've really had before. So these last couple of years have been a true blessing. And I also believe that for as difficult as the stories are to hear, um, being able to deal with things, <clears throat> being able to hear the stories and, and kind of take all that in and absorb it, um, I think makes me stronger because if I'm able to withstand it and not go backwards and practice what I preach. Um, I feel like I'm getting more resilient every day. What was it like for you the first time you stood in front of a crowd and told them your story? I cried like a baby <laughs> and, uh, I don't think I lasted more than a few minutes before I just completely broke down because I was so raw. And, um, that, that happened shortly after I medically retired, but and, and even today I get emotional reliving some of the stuff or sharing my story because I see sometimes the reaction in some of the people's faces. And I know that my story is not unique. And a lot of the th things that I say um, are triggering the people that are hearing it and they come up and they tell me afterwards and um, it's emotional. But um, I think in this industry, in law enforcement, we've typically learned that vulnerability is danger, you know, being, being vulnerable and, and, um, you know, being emotional in front of other people has been a sign of weakness. And I, uh, my whole opinion on that has changed. And so I think it's okay to get emotional and I think it's how we respond or how I respond to reliving events, hearing the things that I hear or speaking in front of people, um, that, also is very cathartic and adds to my healing, if that makes sense. It's uh, pain is something that we typically avoid, right? And avoidance is a huge factor to post-traumatic stress. Uh, it's something that so many of us do. But I've learned and I believe that uh, if you don't avoid the things that are really affecting you, um, and you and you're able to push through it in a way that's positive, and not self-destructive, it makes you stronger. The, the, the job, it's kind of funny, you talked about it doesn't in, encourage or embrace emotions. It, or Emotions, if you cry, you're considered weak. But it does encourage or at least embrace anger. And that's an emotion too. People don't see that there's two sides of it. And getting to 
the core of what's us, it's about dealing with our emotions. And like you just brought out, we, we tend to avoid or we, we bury away the stuff that we perceive or what our peers perceive is weak or negative. And that's what we need to move forward and, and get rid of that stigma. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, when, we, when we hold things in and when we're afraid of uh, or worried about what our peers think or our immediate surrounding, you know, environment um, is and, you know, what people's perceptions of us are, we bury things and uh, over a course of time when officers or any first responder is dealing with cumulative stress and trauma, critical incident after critical incident, I think that uh, sometimes our cup becomes full, boils over. And um, that's when we start seeing the, the kind of problems that I experienced and thousands others around the country are experiencing. And uh, so if, if we did more to try to normalize our normal reactions to these abnormal events that we see in law enforcement, I think it would be a game changer if we reframe the way that we think about how we respond as human beings rather than being a little bit more robotic with a badge and having to put on a facade. Um, I think that we would have a lot fewer suicides, uh, a lot fewer incidents where first responders, particularly law enforcement officers, are losing their jobs because of mistakes or um, dealing with untreated trauma. And so we have to kind of, in my opinion, normalize these, we have to normalize mental health and we have to really embrace the idea that it is okay to not be okay. Right. And that getting help is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. You know, in my career, I was part of the problem. You know, I, uh, very judgmental, uh, I hid my emotions. I looked down on, you know, any idea that being emotional after a tragedy, responding to the heinous things that people do to one another would be a sign of weakness. Um, case in point, I remember going to my first police funeral. I was in the passenger seat taking a video of the community members in the procession uh, on the sidewalks, holding American flags, standing there with their hands over their hearts. And I was trying so hard not to cry in front of my partner who was driving. And I look back at that and I think, you know, that stigma that has really permeated throughout the law enforcement profession is our, um, I think it's our biggest problem in the profession, that stigma. And, and I think it has everything to do with, you know, if we're able to overcome stigma, I think that we can teach officers to live happy, healthy lives. We normalize mental health and create pathways towards healing. We're going to save more. And that's, you know, we're dying more by our own hands than in the line of duty. And that's been a real tragedy because it, these are preventable deaths. Well, in the profession itself, it onboards people who are very, per se, young. You know, early 20s, you don't have everything figured out yet. And so to then put them into situations of extreme stress without the proper tools to deal with them, the, the propensity 
for mental health issues is 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 there it's 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 inherent in the job but it doesn't get acknowledged and we've got the old adage or the old way of thinking of just suck it up buttercup go deal with it and we're now starting to see more and more that are getting impacted by what they're experiencing in their careers sure and i i agree wholeheartedly with that we know and we train you know from the academy on we know that we're going to experience hellacious things we're going to see horrible things and tragedies and uh, death and carnage and destruction and we're trained how to deal with those things in a tactical environment we're trained how to you know collect evidence how to interview people we expect that we're going to experience those things but we we're not trained in a preventative way from day one we're not trained how to deal with how the impacts of trauma are going to affect us untreated trauma and the stigma is so palpable um day one in the academy right we're we're constantly being assessed and judged but more so by our own peers because you know the the importance of peer solidarity and and peer acceptance is quintessential and it is so for survival you know when you're going through a door with someone you have to know and believe that your partner is going to be able to neutralize a threat if you go down or save your life and be tactically prof- proficient or sound. And it's for those very reasons. And it's something that Dr. Uh, John Violante and Kevin Gilmartin talk about frequently in their books. Um, that very same survival instinct and the will to survive that they teach us in the academy is part of, which is necessary, is part of why there's so much stigma. Um, Amongst other things, you know, fitness for duties, organizational behavior, and how agencies respond to mental health stuff. So, yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And I just think that we could do a lot more to advance the profession uh, because we do not have to be losing as many as we're losing, and not just to suicide, but breakdown of the family structure, you know, the divorces, making mistakes on the job, not sleeping enough. And uh, it doesn't have to, in my opinion, be so prevalent and i think if we prioritize law enforcement prioritize mental health and law enforcement uh, from you know the top down leadership uh, i think since sets the tone and so uh, i think that uh, going beyond that i think that we can improve community relations if we have healthier cops you know I've said before that society is not going to benefit from sick cops. So, you know, we owe it to our cops and their families to make this a priority. You started the resiliency project, obviously, and we're going to definitely get there, but let's go backwards a little bit. Where's hometown for you? San Diego. So born and raised San Diego? Born and raised. Yeah. And, uh, when my mother was remarried, uh, when I was, about to be a freshman in high school, moved up to the Bay Area. And then uh, that's where I became an explorer. And then I came back down when I was 20 and went through the San Diego Regional Police Academy. So you got into law enforcement as an officer what year? 2005. And was law enforcement in your family? No. So no brothers, sisters, family? Nope. But did you know you wanted to be a cop from early on? It it was actually because... Uh, <laughs> One day in high school, I was having a bad day. I don't even remember why I was emotional, but I was sitting on the sidewalk with my head down and 
in a small town in Northern California and this police officer pulls up and I thought he was going to mess with me. And I'm like, Oh geez, the cops. Right. <laughs> you, know, you know? And he said, Hey man, uh, looks like you're having a bad day. Um, let me cheer you up. You want to see the inside of my patrol car? I didn't know really where he was going with this. He let me sit in the patrol car. I looked at all the buttons and saw what he was doing, heard the radio traffic and gave me an application to be an explorer. And I, I was 15 years old and I ended up becoming an explorer. And every single weekend I rode with either him or other officers at that agency uh, throughout the entire shift. And I fell in love with the profession, what it stood for. I believed in uh, the nobility of it, uh, justice. I've always believed in, you know, our system of jurisprudence and kind of a nerd and like studying that stuff. And, but I thought that, uh, the honor of being a police officer and serving the community, um, was a, a really noble thing. And I, uh, that's, that's kind of how I got into it. And I knew on my, from my first ride along, that that's what I wanted to do for the, the rest of my life. I, there was nothing else in my head that I could be happier doing than being a police officer. Was there ever anything on your radar prior to that that you thought you might want to do? That I was going to be a soccer player. <laughs> um, but that, you know, that, that changed. I really, I, when I was younger, when I was in San Diego, I played for uh, a club soccer team, uh, the surf. And I thought I would, you know, I wanted to, you know, take that, all the way and maybe go into coaching, but no, it, 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 everything changed when I had my first ride along and we went to a domestic violence call one time, I remember, and I obviously had to sit in the car, but I saw that the officer pulled uh, a husband out of the house who had just beat his wife. And as she, as he was bringing her back to the car, the unit, as she came out uh, of the house and you could see the relief in her face. And, uh, I knew then like, this is, this is what I wanted to do. And so what year was this that you got into, um, not uh, as an explorer, but when you went to the Academy, uh, 2003, 2003 through your career, several different agencies. Yeah. I started off in San Diego at a community college police department and then lateral to a municipal agency in Orange County. You ultimately medically retired from your second agency and we'll get there, but you dealt with some back issues or, or back surgeries from what I understand. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I had, uh, got injured and, uh, I had a couple back surgeries and later had, uh, another surgery on my arm from, uh, all, uh, work related stuff. And, uh, you know, still deal with that stuff today. Um, but that's kind of where things started to change for me. And what was the first thing that you noticed as far as a change? The first thing uh, was my inability to sleep, which I had never experienced before. And so um, when I had lateraled uh, to Orange County and, and during my patrol days, I just, I wasn't able to relax. Uh, I wasn't able to calm down after work. And I became a complete insomniac. And one day would sometimes turn into two days and at my worst three days of no sleep. And I, I really thought and felt like something is not right with me. And so I started going to the doctor to try to get 
um, sleep aids and I, they started prescribing me trazodone and then Ambien. Nothing was working. Uh, so I knew something was wrong then, but I also was, uh, around that time or shortly thereafter being prescribed, uh, pain medication, muscle relaxers, uh, after the surgeries. Uh, and then, uh, it kind of went from there. I, uh, the doctor said, you know, we're no longer able to treat you in our sleep program. We have to send you to a psychiatrist for medication management. And I thought, oh my gosh, like <laughs> the stigma of having to do that was mortifying for me. And I was super, you know, embarrassed and, uh, it was, it was a tough, uh, thing for me to, uh, to do, but I went, they diagnosed me with post-traumatic stress. And, uh, I thought that was just military, you know, from, you know, military personnel, but I, um, I was really just, uh, I felt really ashamed and embarrassed. And, uh, part of me just thought I was really weak and not as tough as the other guys or gals. And, uh, during that time they prescribed me benzodiazepines and that's kind of what led to my eventual downfall. But did the doctors determine that the lack of sleep or inability to sleep was directly related to the PTSD? Yeah. Mm. What were some of the indicators early on? Obviously, you weren't sleeping, but looking back on it, was there anything significant that you can attribute that to? Yeah, I just, I remember distinctly <clears throat> not being able to, aside from not being able to sleep, uh, I started changing, right? I didn't, uh, I started isolating from people more. I started you know, my days off, I didn't want to leave the house. Uh, I would sleep and just sometimes just watch TV. Um, I isolated from my own family. I didn't want to talk about, you know, much. And so that's not, that was not who I was before, right? I was always outgoing and, um, but I started to kind of withdraw from all my social structures. And I also became very hypervigilant, you know, um, hypervigilance on duty is normal and you know, can save your life, right? Um, not 24 hours a day. But not 24 hours a day. And so when I was, you know, getting a little bit more hypervigilant, uh, my anxiety went up and I just thought, uh, I thought something was wrong. So there was a combination of a lot of different things. Did you find yourself pulling away from even the people that you were working with? I did. Um, because I was, and this goes back to that peer context of law enforcement and how important peer solidarity and peer acceptance is in law enforcement, right? I never wanted to feel like I was invalidated or they couldn't trust me. So when I was exhausted, sometimes, uh, you know, I'd walk into work looking like a zombie or I would, uh, I just didn't want them to think something was wrong. So I, you know, over the course of time started to withdraw from them. Um, and there's a lot of different factors that go into that. But uh, at the end of the day, I didn't feel good about myself, you know, and, um, knowing that something just wasn't right, it, it caused me to kind of withdraw from everyone, um, with varying degrees. Right. I mean, I try to put on a good facade and, um, but I was slowly starting to live a lie. You know, I wasn't, uh, it's hard to look in the mirror sometimes because I started to as a result of untreated trauma and cumulative stress and because of the stigma that's so prevalent, the fear of reaching out for help uh, never even crossed my mind because early on, since I was a cadet, you know, it's not something that was ever encouraged or talked about. So 
um, my maladaptive coping strategies started to increase. My adaptive coping strategies decreased. So did my resilience. And I started to numb out on the medications that were being prescribed to me. And over the course of time, I became chemically dependent. Now, your <clears throat> perspective is looking back on, in hindsight a little bit. At the time you were going through this, did you ever correlate any of this with mental health? Or what did you think was going on with you? I, I really, I didn't know. I, I, um, I didn't think, I never even thought about mental health. You know, I never thought, I didn't know anything about post-traumatic stress. I didn't know, I, I knew nothing about how the impacts of trauma impact us. I had no clue. And so I just, um, I just thought I was changing and didn't like what I was becoming. And um, that's probably why I started to withdraw and isolate because I didn't want people to view me as something other than a good partner that could be there for them when they needed me. What kind of support were you getting from your family or, or those you worked with? Were they at least reaching out or, or kind of letting you flounder on your own? Um, you know, I think, um, you know, looking back now, um, we all diff deal with trauma differently, you know, and I didn't know anything about transfer trauma. You know, I would want to come home and tell war stories sometimes and by and large family really didn't want to hear it, not because they didn't care, but because they were worried and about, you know, what would happen to me. So it probably increased their own level of anxiety. And so, no, I didn't, um, you know, their reaction to what I was going through, uh, was not, um, how do I put this? It, it, it wasn't, uh, their reaction to what I was going through wasn't emblematic of who they are or their level of care or love for me. It, it just, uh, it was all kind of fear-based. And so, uh, it became a little bit antagonistic in, in the beginning, um, which caused me to withdraw a little bit more. And as relating to work, um, you know, there would be, I remember one or two people that came up to me and, you know, are you okay? Everything all right? But by and large, this just wasn't a topic of conversation. It wasn't something we discussed. Um, you know, and I wasn't the only one that was struggling, right? Um, you know, looking back now, there were a lot of us that are struggling, not just my own agency, but officers at other agencies that I knew. But it was just, um, it's just one of those things that kind of, we just don't talk about. Well, I think one of the other components of it is, is you hear that you hear the word post-traumatic stress and trauma. And I think for a lot of people, they're going to correlate that with a large event, a, a single big event. But when you're talking about the mental health aspect, it's just a series of small events that maybe one off, you could easily deal with it, but it's the repetition that law enforcement deals with on a daily basis that doesn't get the acknowledgement. True. Yeah. I mean, you know, what we know now about it is it can happen from a single event, right? A mass casualty in incident, active shooter, something like that. But it's been my experience and from everything I've learned uh, over the years is cumulatively, cumulative uh, stress and trauma is really how it, at least I think for me and so many others, how it kind of started. And as a result of that, um, I was so confused because I didn't understand why I was reacting to the things I was reacting to 
or responding, um, you know, not, I, I wasn't responding to my stress or trauma or to what people were telling me in a way that was beneficial or helpful or, um, you know, appropriate. It was, you know, I was very defensive. I was very insecure. I was very, I was just, I was kind of living a lie. I was putting on a, a facade. And so, uh, that, that certainly changed me and that definitely exasperated the underlying traumas that I was having. Right. Would you, what was your outside, um, activities, recreation? Did you have anything that took you away from what you were dealing with? Yeah. So, you know, early in my career, I had tons of, you know, on my days off, I'd go, you know, do things, uh, movies, I'd work out, I'd play, uh, sports, I would hang out with friends. And then, you know, over the course of several years, you know, we'd go debrief, you know, start drinking at bars. Um, we would start to, and that's just very, it was very culturally acceptable. My era was called choir practice. Choir practice. Yeah. Debriefing. And it's, it's, uh, I had no clue how much worse it made things because I remember distinctly, you know, being a young explorer and seeing being in a parking lot with a bunch of cops in a small town, opening up a six pack, drinking it in the parking lot right outside, right after shift. Right. Um, and that's just, that's just this culture. We just don't talk about the things that, that are affecting us. Um, but I had no clue then how much, how detrimental, um, numbing out or just drinking and not talking about things eventually affected me. I had no, I had no clue how about how, uh, how much that made things worse. You address a, a great point in the sense of the, what the culture of law enforcement does. And one of the things that it builds on, you talk about, you know, debriefing or choir practice, whatever you want to call it, that getting together of all these officers and what ends up also becoming common in that is that insulation because nobody else understands us. And so it just further drives that divisiveness as opposed to maybe you do need to keep your friends who aren't in law enforcement as that balance. But for so many, they just get in that culture and that's their entire life. Absolutely. And so common. And I live that. I think a lot do because you're, you know, you're, it, it's, I think it starts from the academy, right? And when you start to get into your career, you start to realize that no one understands a cop more than another cop, right? And so communication changes between family and friends who are not law enforcement because if they haven't been in a uniform or, you know, been in a patrol car, responded to a call, they don't know. They can try to imagine, but they really don't know what it feels like. They don't know what being a police officer feels like and means. And so we do start to kind of alienate ourselves from those people. And that's, that's kind of, well, that's definitely what happened with me. I mean, so you only feel comfortable talking about things and then you start talking in code off duty. You're like, copy that. I still sometimes uh, do that. Um, it just becomes, you know, your communication changes, your outlook changes. There's kind of a us versus them thing, right? Uh, the way that we live our lives off duty changes constantly, you know, 
depending on the officer, right? But generally speaking, we got our backs to the wall. If we're in a restaurant, we're scanning the room, we're looking for threats, and that makes our families nervous. And there's transfer trauma that comes from just even energetically coming home uh, uh, after work. And so I think a collection of factors um, that we've just discussed is kind of what happens in this industry that creates um, more problems than I think really need to be, really need you know to happen. I think that there's so much we could be doing to try to change the industry. Now, I do, I do believe, though, that that pure solidarity, that tightness is quintessential. Um, but there has to be more beyond just hanging out with people that are in law enforcement. And, you know, having a work-life balance is, I didn't have that <laughs> at all. My, my honest opinion is it's, it's twofold. It's got to be a culture that starts from the top down in every organization that mental health is not a weakness. Asking for help is not a weakness. It's not that you failed at anything. It's merely that you've experienced something that the average person would probably react very negatively to, and we expect you to deal with it every single day of your life. Combine that with, like you just said, maintaining that work-life balance. Getting yourself outside of that little bubble of, only other police officers and thinking that nobody understands me, you know, and that's not the easiest thing to do. No, not at all. No, it's, it's so interesting too. Like, you know, there's all these different sub cultures in our society. Right. And, and the uniqueness of law, law enforcement is um, it's really like unmatched by, I, I think by any other subgroup in our society or any other profession. And so, you know, Leadership sets the tone. They create the behavior and the culture at their agency. And when we have um, an agency that prioritizes mental health and, and sets the, uh, the tone that, you know, it's okay to not be okay, uh, it can have amazing ripple effects and actually can change morale and how we treat our cops. Because at the end of the day, cops are so resilient, all our first responders, firefighters, correctional officers, uh, EMT, dispatchers. However, um, it's because, at least in my experience, uh, that level of resilience depletes over time. And of course, I, and I don't think it's reasonable that we expect any first responder to go to a suicide, a child death, be involved in a you know, very, very uh, dangerous or violent confrontation with a suspect to come home and be okay. Over the course of time, it takes its toll. Even the most resilient warriors are affected with varying degrees. And we come to the profession with different levels of resilience, right? And so there's so many different factors and we could go down all these different rabbit holes. But at the end of the day, it's the resp- in my opinion, it's the responsibility of leadership and command staff to set the tone, to create pathways towards healing, to have a, a solution for uh, what happens with an officer that becomes affected or goes into crisis rather than just having a fitness for duty. And we need preventative measures and education and resources on a national way with a national standard because it is 
that I think the system is broken completely. And so you can go to one agency and it's normal to talk about mental health and they can literally go get help without fear of uh, repercussion or having to go to a fitness for duty. And another agency where where we're hearing, you know, command staff or chief say, hey, you know, if you need to go to rehab or this, that, you're, you're done. And so it's that stigma in my opinion, and from what I've seen and learned, and that stigma that prevents us from getting help. And from there, we start to go down that, we start to spiral out. We start to, whatever the maladaptive coping strategy is, whether it's numbing out um, with a substance, you know, alcohol, high-risk sexual behavior, affairs, any high-risk behavior, um, That that's where we start seeing the problems. That's, that's what so many of us have, have uh, unfortunately experienced. And so that's something that has to change. I think it's the double-edged sword that, that is law enforcement in that administrators are looking for people who can deal with stress, deal with a problem, remain calm, and in that situation, find out a solution. Come to a solution for that situation. And then the the double-edged sword aspect of that is, is I think that because they assume that you can handle that situation, you can handle your stuff. And so historically, mental health and how you are between your ears has never been a, a, a priority in law enforcement. Sure. Well, I mean, look, you go into law enforcement, you take your psych, right? MMPI, you go through all, all these different tests to make sure that you're sound and that you're emotionally, psychologically, physically fit to do the job. Right. And, you know, we even have, you know, government code sections and stuff like that, that, that stipulates that you have to be, you know, free of any sort of psychological, uh, injury disorder that would prevent you from doing your job. Right. So, um, that, that leads obviously to the stigma, but in my opinion, um, more can be done and I've seen it where there's been actually like really successful wellness programs where um, we can prevent that and, and use certain in incidents um, and turn it into more of a, a wellness thing rather than a discipline thing or have your command staff kind of look at you with a crooked eye and say, oh, wait, you know what? He just said he was kind of depressed or he said, you know, he's uh, he's not sleeping right? Sometimes the immediate reaction is, uh, something's not right. Fitness for duty. But how can you expect any human being that wears the job? The, uh, I'm sorry, any human being that wears the badge to, to consistently go through the countless indignities or critical incidents, the countless hellacious things that we see and be unaffected. So when you set a tone that says, you know, um, you better, you better, um, always be, you know, sound and there better, better not be anything, you know, wrong, which they don't just say, but it's, it's the culture, right. In the, in the, uh, industry, like who's going to want to go and get help. Who's going to actually want to talk about that or grab it, a, a, a meet with their partner in the middle of the shift and say, I'm really struggling. Like who, who's going to want to do that? If you, uh, end up possibly losing everything because of a fitness for duty, you know, a lot of what happens, you know, a lot of command staff, a lot of leadership uh, around the country 
when they see someone who's starting to struggle, they look at them as a liability, right? They don't, they don't, and, and, and they're trying to protect the agency because the primary concern is the community, right? And I think that that's... The opposite to that, though, is <clears throat> if you focus on taking care of the person, guess what? You already then take care of the community and you take care of the agency. Yeah. Sick cops um, are not going to engage with the community, typically, um, in a way that is beneficial, right, for the agency or the community. Society doesn't benefit from sick cops. So, you know, we, we've long, like, focused on community-oriented policing and enhancing the relationship between law enforcement and the community start, you know, community policing in the eighties and the nineties and the, you know, tip a cop and coffee with a cop and do, you know, all these different things. Um, and, and those things have advanced the relationships, right. With the community members in some areas of the country, but by and large, we haven't really taken a hard look at mental health and prioritized it in a way where we can actually see what the outcomes are. Right. And I, and I believe that leadership, strong and effective leadership has direct outcomes, direct causation on mental health outcomes. So, you know, uh, I think if we just took a different stance on leadership or, or uh, on, on mental health, we, we wouldn't be seeing the things that we're seeing. And the stories that we hear are heartbreaking, right? We're, you know, we're, we're sending a message that says it's okay to not be okay. Get help if you need to get help. And a lot of agencies are doing that. Um, but what happens is if we're encouraging them to do that and they do that, well, then they're, they're uh, right on the fitness for duty or they're off work. And I'm not saying that's every instance, but it's so much more common than the opposite. The other thing that's equally important, in my opinion, though, is being a good peer, being a mm -hmm. good partner. And you bring up a good point because we've all been there in our law enforcement career. We've all been there car to car, that you know, late night, middle of the shift, whatever it is. Never once can I ever think back of a conversation of, hey, how are you doing? Sure. And, and, and how, do, how do we get better as partners to do that? Right. Well, we typically say, hey, you good? You good? And uh, the typical response is like, yeah, good to go. Right. And we're not. And I think that if we as partners didn't judge uh, our partners or our peers as much as we always have, or as we did in the academy or, you know, an FTO or, you know, like we take bets sometimes, right? If someone's going to pass the academy, pass FTO, pass probation. So if we just like, um, started to kind of evolve as a law enforcement industry and actually ask probing questions to our partners, Hey, I noticed you've been calling it sick a lot. Hey, how's your wife? How's your, how are your kids? Like, what, what do you, you know, what's going on? How are you? and didn't judge our peers or make them feel inadequate, they'd feel safer opening up, right? And in the peer context of law enforcement, like that's everything, right? And so one thing I've learned is that when, because of the stigma and because of how we sometimes treat each other as peers or the things that we say, um, it can actually help prevent an officer from isolating because they don't feel good about themselves or they don't feel adequate or as strong as the partner. And when, when, when we see that, like that becomes typically that becomes the, 
the beginning of the downward spiral. If we had partners that lifted us up, didn't make us feel like we, like there was something wrong with us. Um, it could change the ball game. I don't think we always have to wait for leadership. We, we can have a real influence within our immediate sphere, within our immediate, um, peer group, um, to have better mental health outcomes. And I can say that, you know, I've experienced this. I know a lot of many others have experienced this. Sometimes we're told by our peers, like, Hey, why is that person bothered? They weren't even there. They didn't even know that person, but they were you, right? They, the, to say that because somebody wasn't there, they weren't impacted by it. If I'm friends with you and you tell me about a story that when you were working, you almost lost your life. That has an impact on me because I almost lost my friend. 100%. And why shouldn't I, as your partner, as your peer, accept that and want to like help you, right? Well, that's the, that's the other side of that coin in the sense that we like to throw out brother and sister and we got your back and and thin blue line. And I, I agree with it 100%, but we do that for the pot, what we seem as the positive or the strength. We never, if, if somebody's perceived as weak, like you said before, it's like we're sharks and there's blood in the water. We feed on that in a, in a sense, not in a positive way but in an extremely negative way of just continuing to push that person down. Absolutely. Great point. Like, you know, unfortunately, uh, I, I'm not, this isn't to be negative. I mean, hopefully this is, you know, something that can be looked at and, you know, thought about, but, um, when there's an officer, death or an OAS or, um, you know, something happens. I've personally experienced this and someone starts to become emotional. You get like sometimes a senior officer that'll start talking shit about that person, right? You think that cop who's affected and now all their peers are making fun of them are ever going to want to be around them ever again. And that thin blue line you're talking about, you know, this, the (laughs) law enforcement family, right? in my opinion, should extend to mental health and you should be there. And if it's off duty and you have the opportunity to try to get to that partner, to try to help them, like that's the thin blue line. That's being there for your partner. It's not just showing up because you're in a foot pursuit or a fight and trying to help them. It extends beyond that, right? We have to, we have to be there as partners in what we deem as the good and what we deem as the bad. You know, somebody's going to be going through something. Maybe you don't understand what they're going through, but you still need to be a good partner. You still need to be a sense of support for that person. Or like you said, going back to, it needs to start with, I truly believe it needs to start with culture. It needs to start with culture of the organization in how everybody is treated. And that starts at the top down, but equally important, we all have to be better partners. We have to be better brothers, sisters, whatever you want to refer to it as in looking out for our those that we work with. I agree. And <clears throat> it's very interesting because, you know, agency to agency, there's different cultures, right? State to state, county, county, different regions, all these, um, it's like a melting pot of all these different cultures at the, but by and large stigma is there and mental health is typically taboo, but in a place, you know, take uh, Fisher's PD in Indiana under the leadership of chief Ed Gephardt the things that he's doing to try to advance mental health at his agency. I mean, when I've been there, the couple times that I've been there and I've seen how that dynamic directly changes the peer relationship when he normalizes 
mental health and backs it up with action. You know, he's, he, I've, he's had opportunities where he could have just gone one way, but went another way. And the outcome of it didn't just help the officer who was struggling, but it cha- it's changing the entire culture at the agency, right? And so I think that we are doing a disservice to those that are struggling and we're losing more than we have to. And in today's environment, with everything that we're seeing in society and what our cops are going through, and especially in these last two years, what, what, kind, of, what kind of expectations are we having? What are we really asking of our cops? Really, we're asking them to go into every single situation in society, be society's gatekeepers, right? There's, there's a million expectations of them. The expectations of them are set at a higher standard than the rest of society. And we're expecting them to come home, be okay, have a healthy family life, come back to work the next day, go through more critical incidents and when they're struggling, we say to them, no fitness, fitness for duty, like that's it. So, you know, what's, what's the incentive in 2021 to be a police officer with what we're seeing? They're human beings that deserve every single avenue or pathway towards healing that every other human being in society gets and is offered without judgment, without fear of persecution or any retaliation. And it's going to take a village. It's not Nick, the Resiliency Project. It's, it, it has to be a nationwide concerted effort, you know, and it starts at the top. It really does. So, you know, you see a lot of, you know, chiefs and command staff. They go to SLI, FBI National Academy. They go... Every leadership school under the, under the sun. And unfortunately, sometimes when any of those people come back to their agencies, um, where they're being taught like leadership principles and wellness and all this kind of stuff, mental health, um, they're not practiced, right? It's something that they use to promote or advance their own career. And I'm not saying that's every time, but, um, from the things I've seen or experienced, um, we're, we are really missing the mark. It's and a larger number than it should be. It's a much larger number than it should be, yeah. And we have to start doing the right things for the right reasons. And we have to start being critical thinkers, right? You know, you can't just, in my opinion, <laughs> yes, like in California, we have a government code section, right? You got to be free of all psychological, okay. And if you're not, or if there's just mere, you know, reasonable suspicion that there might be an issue, you can go to a fitness for duty, which could potentially end your career, right? Um, Don't our cops who are sacrificing everything, who are for, for what, you know, don't they deserve every opportunity to get help? I think what happens is when, when a cop when a police officer experiences the wrath and scorn, not just of society, but then from within their organization, and they start to feel or experience organizational betrayal, whether it's real or perceived, uh, that is the, that, that's the most common thing, I think, that exasperates 
all mental health issues, all the underlying mental health issues. And I think that nothing really can kill a cop more than betrayal because of how we enter the career and what that thin blue line stands for and what they are, um, how they set us up to go into this profession. You know, this is something that Dr. John Vellante discusses when I went to a trauma retreat. This was the primary focus, right? We know we're going to go see death, destruction, deciding what we don't ever think when we start our career is that the very thin blue line family and the only, the very department that we're working for and, and risking our lives every day to serve the community for, it's going to do something that they don't have to do that adversely affects us. And when they feel betrayed, it changes the entire way that they think about the profession and what they were taught and told. Right. And so, I mean, this is a very complex thing, but it's really not. We just have to start doing the right thing. We just have to start treating our cops from command staff down as human beings. Now, obviously there are people who are affected so much that they no longer can do the job. Right. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a different thing. I just think that we can do more to save those that need saving if they can be saved before we end up retiring them out, fitness for duty, they're medically retired and, uh, that's it. Uh, they're an afterthought. And that's what happens with law enforcement and retirement, whether it's a service, regular service retirement or medical retirement, by and large, you're an afterthought and you're no, no longer part of that family. No, usually when you walk out the door, everybody says, oh, we'll talk to you, you know, see you later. And, and a week goes by and maybe a few people call, a month goes by, a few less people call. And by a year or so later, you know, you're if forgotten. I, yeah, that's, and that's, that's a pretty, you know, generous amount of time. I mean, it's, uh, it's, I've experienced way shorter, you know, shorter amount of time here. And, and, but, but this, this is another factor to it. Cause I was telling you, I didn't have a work-life balance, right? I was married to the job. The badge was my identity, which is not healthy, right? That's all, that was it. Nick, the cop. And that's a very dangerous thing, I think, for any police officer to be. And so it's, it's kind of sad when you think about that. Uh, and this is many cops are, are like that, right? Many cops identify with the badge. And that's their identity. But briefly we, going back and looking at it in hindsight, at that time, did you ever have the point where to yourself you felt that wasn't normal or did for you that you were good to go? Um, yeah. Nick the cop. Nick the cop. That was my purpose for being here on earth. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I, the, per, it was because, you know, and you always hear and you, you, you hear it in the academy, you know, uh, the job chooses you, right? It's not just a job. This is a, you know, this is, this is a calling. This is, you know, and there's something to that, but the, at the end of the day, it is also just a job. Okay. But when you're young and you're impressionable and you, you believe in, you know, justice and you believe in, um, what the profession stands for and you're reciting the code of ethics and you're, you know, thin blue line, thin blue line, and we're going to go protect the, the innocent and the weak against deception and all these different things, right? It's almost like an indoctrination process. Not in a malicious or evil way, but, you know, they're preparing you to go out into 
the unknowns in our society and be able to go into any situation or critical incident and expect a positive outcome, right? So I think one of the challenges that we're seeing is that we have a, a, a situation right now in our country where you've got people who are going down that path and that's what they believe, which is what I believed. And the trauma that is left untreated from critical incidents starts to permeate into our lives. And when we don't feel supported by our own, or we feel like we are too afraid to ask for help, um, then we retire, whether it's service or just, and then we don't hear from anybody or they strip away from us our career because of a fitness for duty. It challenges our entire understanding and concept of what it means to be a police officer. And that betrayal bleeds into our family life, right? And that can also, if, if there are no plans in place or you're not prioritizing your mental health or have a self-care plan or strategy, is part of one of the contributing factors that leads to all the divorces and the high-risk behavior and the extramarital affairs, the substance abuse. We're, we're killing ourselves. You just hit on so many of the topics that I, I loosely say this are joked about in law enforcement, divorce, you know, alcohol abuse, all infidelity. Even just having that as a topic of conversation indicates that the job needs a, re, a reboot. Total reboot. Now, you, you pile onto that the number of suicides that we're seeing. It's just another example of how we're not addressing the, the officers as people. They're looked at as the, the robots, so to speak, who can go out and deal with a problem. But nobody's thinking about, wait a minute, when they come back home, how are they dealing with their problems? Yeah, this is, it's everything, right? And the very thing, to expand on that, the very thing that we need the most to heal is our family and our social structures. But it's the one thing that we push away and alienate sometimes because that's what happens with trauma. That's what happens with, you know, when we get off work, we just want to shut down. We, what happens with most cops? They don't want to make a decision, Right. They, you know, sometimes their spouses will say, hey, where, you, where do you want to go to dinner? Where should we do that? And you're just fried. You've got the burnout. You've got all these different things that are working against uh, our own mental health, our physical health, right? And over the course of time, we start to break down. Our decision-making starts to be affected. The lens through which we see the world changes. Our role within the world changes. Our concept of what our entire... Uh, purposes changes. And when we feel this betrayal and all the uncertainty over the course of time, you know, I'm speaking, generally speaking, at least this was, you know, with me, like you lose your, your purpose. When you lose your purpose, you lose your hope. And so it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. I've honestly, looking back, I just, I, I can't believe that there's an, in 2021, with what we're seeing in the country that we have done nothing in a concerted streamlined standardized fashion to prioritize mental health with real solutions to fix this problem because it, it's it, our workforce, which is everything, right? Your people are everything. And if they're not well, if they're, you know, getting divorces and they're just exhibiting all this high risk behavior, and then this bleeds not just to the family life, but to the, to 
the citizens that we're supposed to be serving. I mean, we got to start thinking a little bit more outside the box and start being a little bit more accepting of the fact that even if you work in a small town where you're not having violence and chaos every single shift, just putting the uniform on and going, you know, out on the street, you're constantly in a situation where you're, you're, you're at a level 10, right? Not a level 10, but I mean, you're, you have that hypervigilance and officer safety and it's exhausting. So we all respond differently to trauma, um, but we're, we're missing the mark, I think. And there's a lot more we could be doing. And there's, there's a lot of ideas out there. But I think that command staff, leadership, you know, chiefs, uh, and even legislatively, you know, we have to like reframe the way that we think about fitness for duties. We, you know, there, there is a, there is a, a, a role, there's a place for that. Right. But some, usually speaking, like we don't have to wait till it gets that bad. You know, uh, well, it's like you said earlier, it is a profession that chooses you. And there are some people that they are, you know, are meant for law enforcement. There are some people who are not. And if you're not that an agency can't put a bandaid on that. If, if this isn't for you, if, if you can't, you have to be able to deal with stressful situations. That's what the job is about. You can't be in a situation where, hey, I need you to maintain your composure right now. Granted, when the situation's done, 30 minutes behind, we can talk about it then, but I need you to maintain your composure now. There are some people that that isn't them. But at the same token, just because you can deal with this situation right now, an agency and our peers need to make sure that it's the 30 minutes later, hey, are you okay? Are you dealing with it all right? And that's what we need to get better at. I agree. In the peer context of everything, yeah, we have to start start being a little bit more, a lot more supportive, less judgmental, um, more understanding about how uh, traumatic stress can impact our life and the way that we respond to things, right? But you know, at the end of the day, too, like if we don't have strong and effective leadership that are su- supportive of mental health. Um, if we don't have strong and ethical decision-making at a leadership level, which directly impacts the course and trajectory sometimes of police officers' careers and livelihood. I mean, we're going to start losing more and more cops like we are today for a variety of factors. And we're not going to be hiring the right kind of cops. Okay. And so that, that's something that scares me. And you know, we want all this, like, <laughs> it's funny that we, d- we demand as a society almost perfection from our police officers. And those people that are demanding perfection are all imperfect people. And so are uh, command staff and leadership. So it's like, at the end of the day, I, I just think that, you know, hopefully there can be a true paradigm shift where we reframe the way that we respond to our, um, our troops, our workforce, and, and come up with really um, progressive and, and positive uh, avenues to deal with people who are struggling. And I think at the end of the day that uh, if, if, if we're not going to do that, if we're not going to give everything that we can 
to improve our our the mental health of those that are sacrificing everything those shouldn't those leaders shouldn't be in those positions because you're doing you're doing everyone a disservice your your own department the morale the families of the police officers who are sacrificing everything in the community um i mean the stories that we hear uh, you sometimes i can't even in and our team uh, we can't even wrap our heads around what we're hearing, and um, it's sad. It's it's uh, it's heartbreaking. They deserve our police officers deserve all first responders deserve the absolute best treatment. You can't go, in my opinion, an entire career, and and come out unscathed. And we go into this profession thinking that this is going to be it. Like we're going to stay from academy to retirement. We never think outside the <clears throat> the box. Uh, you know, typically speaking, like what are we going to do if I get hurt? What what's my what's plan B? What what what's the next step for me? The identities, the the badge, the profession. Well, and one of the ancillary things for my podcast though is to get people kind of thinking about that what if, but. Uh, I'm not going to derail you on that. The The one thing I will say, though, is uh, the way I look at it is it's about a relationship. You've got people coming in the door wanting to be a police officer, and they're giving you their half of the relationship. As an agency, they're expecting the same in return. I don't care if it's a husband and wife or a police officer and their agency. If both sides aren't giving equally into the relationship, the relationship's going to fail. So agencies need to take care of their officers as much as their officers need to take care of their agencies. It's, it's got to work together. And, and to be out there on an island by yourself, or at least perceived as being on an island by yourself, you're, you're destined to fail. True. Yeah, I agree. Well, and I also think that, look, this, is, this isn't anything new, right? I think no. I, you know, leadership and its direct correlation to mental health outcomes has always been a thing, right? Um, and it is, I think, in every job, every profession. But there is something, there is a uniqueness to law enforcement because of everything that we've just discussed and the culture, right? Um, I believe that uh, we're seeing in the in the last year to two years something very different and a very different shift. And I believe that from everything we've learned and heard and seen that. Um, the problem is getting worse in many uh, places around the country. And uh, I'm not about politics. I'm not about, like, I don't care, you know, where you're at with, where anyone's at with that. But I do believe that there are external forces that absolutely influence decision-making. And when that happens... Um, you've just uh, unfortunately ruined things, not just for the officer you're making a decision about, but your entire agency. And there are just certain things that shouldn't be happening. I think we need leadership that is going to stand tall and protect the troops if they do the right thing and they're within policy. And you know what the common thing we, we hear? Um, you know what? I was within policy, but it just didn't look good. Well, no use of force looks good, right? Um, we need, we need leadership to have political courage today because everything's on the line. And if we set precedent and not support the troops, 
because of these external forces. You're going to have more officers getting injured, which we hear all the time, because they're not going to want to defend themselves or use force. They're worried about getting prosecuted. They're worried about, you know, media, unusual media attention. They're worried about all these different things. So now it's changing our tactics on the street in many cases, right? So this is exasperating even more mental health issues. And, and I would, I mean, I would say 99% of the calls that we hear, it's all about betrayal, real or perceived organizational betrayal. And that's why leadership is so important. They set the tone. So strong and ethical and effective decision-making is leadership who prioritizes mental health and creates pathways towards healing and lets their troops know it's okay to not be okay. We're just not going to stay that way and we're going to get you help. Right. Aren't they, don't they deserve that, that opportunity? Because what I've seen before it gets too late, I've seen in so many cases, people actually get help and be able to come back to work. You know, they're being re-triggered all the time when they drive by a situation where there was an OIS or a a partner of theirs that were shot or, you know, a, a child death every single shift. So how do you heal in a profession that you're constantly the next day going to constantly being re-triggered in an environment that's so judgmental and there's so much fear of what would happen to you if you ask for help. The, 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 the rules almost have been set in opposition, right? It's, it's not reasonable to expect what we're seeing with our cops, especially not between 2020 and 2021. Well, that's why if it was up to me, I would like to see it where mental health counseling is mandatory. Just it, it should it should be a component totally. of the same way you have to go to the range and qualify with your gun. The same way you have to learn how to drive a car. You have to go to mental health counseling should be absolutely viewed as a perishable skill. They they should be getting ongoing and continuing training and mandating yearly at minimum yearly check ins, not an evaluation, not a fitness for duty, but a a at least a yearly check-in because then you remove stigma. If you remove the decision for an officer to go, right? They have to go. They're all going to go. Then you're starting to normalize this over the course of time. It's just going to be part of the program. If you leave it up to the officer, no one's going to go. Right. Right. So, you know, and if we start teaching cops that, um, to have a life outside of the job early on, right. In a more standardized fashion, um, if we started thinking about different things like neurofeedback, brain scans to assess the changes in our brains, right? Uh, we can actually like in a predictive way, learn how to uh, not intervene, but start providing um, resources and help to, mi- to minimize or mitigate what happens to our brains when they're affected by trauma, it's a psychological injury, just like a broken leg, just like a broken arm. Okay. That you get in a fight or a foot pursuit. You can now see brain scans that are affected by trauma and what happens with untreated trauma. So why don't we start making, you know, we could, we could have so many different treatment modalities and options, but we're so laser focused as a society on what our cops are doing, what our cops are not doing, how they handled something, and we're beating them to the ground. 
Now, I'm the first to advocate for uh, an officer who doesn't deserve to wear the badge to get him out, right? But unfortunately, like, in my opinion, we're seeing good cops whose careers have been ended. They didn't have to be ended. And this goes between culture and society and, and, and the way that we uh, are uh, handling things in this in- industry. And we're, it's also the external forces that are affecting decision-making at the top. So we have to somehow reprioritize the way that we're looking at how to treat our police officers, how we have, you know, different organizational behaviors that actually are productive and how we deal with external issues from the society that is demanding so much where we have seen so much destruction and chaos in the last two years. Oh, and I keep coming back to it. It it all comes back down to taking care of your people. Be empathetic and take care of your people. You can look at every other, not every other entity, but the football league, for instance. They've changed the way the game is played because you have to look at the person and their long-term health and the damage that's getting done to their brains from hard impacts. The military is already showing that many of our soldiers are coming back with significant brain injury from blasts and exposure to um, concussion, you know, um, blasts from explosions. Same way with law enforcement. We're, we're keeping your head buried in the sand and thinking that these men and women experience trauma on a daily basis and it doesn't have a lasting impact on their mental health is negligent Agreed. To, to, to put it mildly. Yeah. I don't think there's anything <clears throat> I think personally, like in my life and everything that I see, and especially with what our amazing team sees, I don't think that there's anything more grotesque than seeing a leadership making decisions to maybe pacify or satisfy whatever group or entity that they're trying to and be so easily willing to throw a cop's career away. And it's interesting, like law enforcement is supposed to be apolitical, right? Um, But I think that there's almost an egregious um, thing that we're seeing, an egregious trend. And, And by and large, the majority of the stories that we hear or the you know, when we're teaching or speaking or anything like that, it all comes back to this. This is the number one complaint of our police officers from what I hear and see and experience, right? I'm, I'm, it's, uh, we, you know, of course people are going to struggle with critical incidents. I'll be honest with you. Like I cried for the, you know, one time on duty and I, uh, at a child death and I thought like, oh my gosh, I'm weak. Like, you know, I, I couldn't believe that I cried on duty. I had to remove myself from the situation and all that stuff. Right. But, and don't get me wrong. Like everything that happened to me in my life, this was my fault. Okay. Because I'm, I'm the one that chose to numb out and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, like in so many cases, we could do a lot more to prevent these things from happening because what, what's happening is command staff making decisions that sends a message to every other officer there in the, in the department, you know? Um, well, going back to your example though. So that's a prime example of the culture of the industry. 
The fact that a child died and you were struck with it emotionally, which a normal person would find that is the appropriate response, but yet you felt you needed to walk away. So our culture enables or encourages a lack of emotion, which completely is is counterintuitive to how we are as human beings. Totally. You know, it's, you just brought a good, really good point. Like, um, you know, imagine, and I'm, I'm, when I say this, I mean, you know, everything should be within reason, right? I'm not saying that, you know, a cop should be having a total meltdown. Of on course. All right. But, um, the you profession know, still requires you to maintain your composure in a given situation. Absolutely. But I also believe that there would be, you know, if you become emotional and shed a tear at it, when you're on scene at a call while the parents are weeping and the families are members are there and you hear the whelping, the screaming, the agonizing pain of something that's tragic, you shed a tear um, rather than try to hold it back. That would not only help the officer because they're, they'd be have, they have to stuff it but it could create a, a situation where there's a connection between the victims and the officer, which would improve community relations. Because when you're crying and sobbing as a victim and the officer's just like, yeah, just the facts. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How do you think the victims feel, right? We have to start becoming more compassionate and understanding and start humanizing what we're talking about instead of just having a hashtag and a slogan, so that the agencies can say, oh, no, look, this is what we do. Like, we support it. Their actions say everything, right? So, you know, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not some, like, you know, screw admin everywhere, right? But it's such a big deal that, that it has to be acknowledged. And so uh, I know that we're not, it's, it's not a perfect world. And we're not going to have every single police chief or command staff be, you know, what we expect them to be, but there needs to be some hard changes if we want our society to change. Well, to use the military analogy of, you know, you don't turn a battleship quickly. It's going to take some time, but we got to start turning the steering wheel. And I, I, I will say, in my opinion, we are turning the steering wheel. It's just, it's going to take more time to really see the, the, the ramifications of that. Um, for the most part, I do honestly believe that the the culture is still very much, hey, you know, deal with your own, and and you know, don't cry over spilled milk, so to speak. Yeah, I I agree, and I just um, I can't hap- happen but to you know, I can't help but to think of um, how tough it is to be in law enforcement today. I. Um, you know, when we hear the stories, when we hear like real legitimate career cops who have had just an impeccable career and you're, you know, you're on the phone with them and you're seeing their tears and you're seeing them break down and, and they feel so worthless because they don't know how they got there, what's wrong with them. That is shameful that we've gotten so far as, as a society, like away from having a compassionate understanding of the human response to critical incidents. It's tragic because I, the team, our, our whole team, when they're peer supporting or me, when I'm talking to someone, I tell them, there's nothing wrong with you. You're a human being. This is normal. 
right? And you've held it in so long that you're unraveling and now you don't know why because you, you we've never been taught how to deal with this, right? And 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 it's it's frustrating because unfortunately we get so we're getting these calls unfortunately like when it's already, you know, a crisis. Right? We're not getting we're not getting the calls, well, ah, I just can't sleep. <laughs> it's like they're here. And that's the leadership's responsibility to to change that. But it, I think it's incumbent upon us all from the peer from our peers, you know, and every single component of an agency to outside organizations, both public and private, to work together because this is going to take a village. It shouldn't be just one organization. We should all be working together to do the right thing for the right reasons. Um, unfortunately we're not. And so what are we doing? I mean, we can talk about this all day long on podcasts, radio, uh, you can, we can make videos. I mean, we can do all these different things, but until we start actually taking action steps to effectuate change, the problem is going to continue to permeate. Um, you know, we've got cops now who, in my opinion, and and the opinion of, you know, people that we work with who should not be getting charged with crimes, but are because of what's going on in society today. This is a very real thing. People are getting, you know, prosecuted unjustly. So what does that do to a cop who believes in fairness and equality under the law? Who, you know, you're taught from day one, it's, it's, it's just as important to exonerate an innocent person as it is to prosecute or help hold uh, liable uh, a guilty person. And so when you see what we're seeing because of politically motivated agendas, you're ruining the morale of our cops. They don't want to do their job. They're afraid to go to work. So right now from in, in many places in the country, they're just showing up to work, hoping that they don't have to use force, hoping and praying that they're not going to get caught on camera doing their job, protecting the community and having it twisted and made to look like something else. Don't get me wrong. There are a lot of cases where there's excessive force. There's all these different things, right? Those have to be handled because we cannot break trust with the community. But if we really want to like improve that, we can't buckle under the political pressures or motive, politically, motive, politically motivated agendas from these external forces because you're, you're ruining the department. They don't want to do their job. Just the other day, we heard a story about, you know, <laughs> multiple officers being injured out of fear of doing their jobs appropriately using reasonable force because of what has happened to their colleagues either being terminated and losing their careers under an excessive force complaint or being prosecuted by a DA at essentially the direction of the agency because they want to go like, you know, this, absolve their hands from something because, oh my gosh, some sort of group is going to have a panic attack or respond. No, stand tall for your troops. Send the message. And you're sending the message not just to the troops but to the community because we're seeing parts and fractions of the community becoming empowered by policies that are driven at the legislative level, right? Or the DA level. And, you know, as a result, you're seeing the statistics with crime increasing 
cops aren't going to go out there and be proactive if they're if just like that they're going to lose everything. So this is like this is how could this not impact mental health? You know, you it, it, it has a huge impact. It has a huge impact on how you feel when you head out every day, put your uniform on, and go do your job. Yeah, and and you know when we know is well, I'm retired now, right? But you know. Um, police officers, uh, and this is research, you know, Dr. John Violante, I think coined this term, but police officers, moral compass, it typically points towards justice and benevolence. You know, the psychological profile of a police officer typically believes in goodness, fairness, right? You, we don't have, you know, a nationwide problem where we've got thousands of police officers just waking up every day going, okay, who can we go, whose rights can we go violate? Who can we just go beat down? I've never experienced that. I've, I've met some bad cops, right? And they're no good. They, they, they stain the rest of the profession, but there's, there's a narrative, unfortunately, and it's unfortunately impacting decision-making policies, procedures, organizational behavior. And when a police officer who goes into the profession with honor and believes in equal justice under the law and fairness, and then starts to experience themselves the exact opposite with already like how difficult the job is to do. This is so significant because of what they believe from day one, the thin blue line, the family, got your back, got your six, that goes out the window. And if their identity is the badge, imagine then once they're affected, their concept of life, if it's all completely challenged, like they're looking at me, like I thought this was my family. And in many cases, law enforcement officers are closer to their own partners than their families, which is not good or healthy. Right. So there's just a collection of things that I think that all of us could be doing to change the environment that we're in, but it's going to take courage and leadership. Um, I agree at the peer level, we could do so much more, but we got to get serious because we, we have watched suicides be the, the number one cause of, of law enforcement death, not line of duty, that. Minus the last year, right? Right. And and the numbers are continuing to grow. True. And and there isn't that strange too that all of a sudden, just in 2020 and 2021, law enforcement officer deaths in the line of duty have skyrocketed. What by gunfire or by being assaulted by suspects? It's not traffic accidents. And what? So there's a reason for that, in my opinion. I don't want to. You know, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole because <laughs> that's a different political uh, podcast, a different, di- different podcast. But at the end of the day, we do have to acknowledge that there is something to this as it relates to mental health. And, um, you know, we can do a better job because our troops our our, our police officers. They are, they deserve the best in my opinion. I mean, they're out there sacrificing. They're giving everything they got expected to be, damn near perfect. And, uh, many cases they're getting a slap in the face and, uh, this, this directly impacts 
so many things. If we want better community relations, fewer suicides, less divorces, um, improved morale, we have to reshape the way that we, we treat our cops and create solutions based on research and the understanding of what outcomes are possible when we get them into either treatment or get them from a preventative way, you know, and, you know, have real wellness programs, have real peer support teams that where you're, you're choosing people on the team that are not just trying to promote and have a, something on the resume, like, no, people who understand like the importance of confidentiality, who really want to be there for their partners. Oh, it's uh, it's a collection of factors, I think. And if you know, I get a little bit passionate sometimes, so forgive me. Oh, <laughs> but if you okay. hear that, it's because um, uh, you know, there there is a feeling sometimes of hopelessness and helplessness that comes with peer supporting people who, you know, this isn't the profession I remember, right? What we're seeing in the last two years, right? I mean, I've experienced organizational betrayal, whether it was real or perceived, right? My, you know, a lot of people I know have, um, but I think, I, I just think that um, they're heroes. I think our police officers are absolute heroes. Our firefighters, correctional officers, our dispatch, I mean, all of them are heroes and we need them and we need the best. We can't afford as a, as a society subpar or mediocre, we need the best. So how are we going to get the best if we're not treating them like they're the best? So speaking about your passion, let's get into the resiliency project. But briefly, I'd like to talk about how you got to your, let's call it bottom line or, or end of the road, so to speak, for law enforcement that forced you down this new path. Yeah. Um, I unfortunately let what others thought of me be my guiding, you know, principle and the fear of the stigma that prevented me from getting help. That was me. Right. And then I started to numb out and, um, I ended up getting a crashing my car, getting a DUI when I was off duty. Um, my rock bottom. Did you end up having to go to treatment for that? Yeah, I got, um, this is towards like the very end of my career. And, uh, I already had all the surgeries and my body was already like, I mean, I'm in my thirties, but I feel like an 80 year old man. Right. Like, I'm, um, but beyond that, there was, there was the underlying post-traumatic stress stuff. And so, yeah, I went to treatment after that. Um, I had to basically put in for retirement, uh, because I was done both physically and at the time I needed to heal emotionally, psychologically. Um, but physically, like I was done, done. Um, I knew that, uh, I couldn't really serve my partners if I couldn't, you know, hold, hold a, a door for hours on end or, or help, help them in a fight, which, you know, presents its own <laughs> issues. But, uh, I think that I, I was going to say, I, I went to treatment. I went, uh, took, you know, seven days to detox, 30 day inpatient, two weeks outpatient. Surprisingly, that's where I realized I wasn't alone. There were 45% of the people I was with, uh, at treatment with were all cops. 
and firefighters, but, you know, primarily cops. And I was like, oh, wow, I'm not alone. Like <laughs> we called ourselves the degenerates, <laughs> made fun of ourselves, um, trying to figure out how the hell we got there. And, but really where my healing journey started was going to a trauma retreat and understanding the uniqueness of first responder trauma and being able to actually for the first time participate in critical incident debriefing and EMDR and dialectical behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, all forms of exposure therapy, neurofeedback. Is it a retreat specifically for first responders? Yeah, there's, you know, one in, um, uh, Northern California, and they're building more around the country. And, and there's another one that we're excited to be uh, potentially partnering with, um, all of which deal with the um, the uniqueness of, of law enforcement trauma with culturally competent clinicians who understand it. And, um, you know, that's, another, that's a whole other topic. But, you know, when I retired, I ended up working at two different very, for a very short time, you know, a couple of different treatment places and started learning a lot about the treatment world. And, um, that's another thing that, um, it's a huge factor in, uh, treating our law enforcement, because if we don't have cultural competence with our clinicians, you can do a lot more damage than good. You can hurt them more than good if they're not culturally competent. For instance, if you and I are, you know, partners and we're out on a, uh, a dead body call, right? And it's uh, it's just us, and we're waiting for the corner. We might be cracking jokes or talking about something of the weekend, right? To kind of diffuse the what we're seeing and experiencing. So, like culturally, like sometimes we have a dark sense of humor, right? Law enforcement. If your clinician is not culturally competent and sees that, for instance, this is a micro example, right? I'm just, but we see we have seen it. You know, uh, they the clinician could potentially respond to that person by thinking that something's wrong with them, further deteriorating the mental health of the officer who's already struggling, making them feel like something's wrong when that's whether it's right or wrong, that's a cult that's what we learn, right? And that's how we learn to try to you know, humor. Um, so we need cultural competence and I think the treatment industry is a whole nother subject and topic. But if law enforcement agencies worked and partnered with outside Entities like that, like LAPD, they get, they, they have a whole unit dedicated to getting pe- their cops into treatment, which is fabulous. It's, it's great. Uh, but we need that uh, nationwide <laughs> and we need more uh, treatment facilities for both chemical dependency and for just trauma for those that are not chemically dependent to be working together. So it, it takes a village, I think. What was your impetus, though, to, to actually go forward and create the Resiliency Project? Because I felt alone when I was going through what I was going through. I thought something was wrong with me. And uh, my life became unraveled, you know. I had, uh, when I hit rock bottom after that, I didn't have a plan B. I hated myself. And I, at the end of the day... Um, I never wanted anyone to feel alone. And like, this wasn't like a plan that I had right after, right? Like it, it was a, it, it took a couple of years to even come up with the idea of it. But I just, in working in the treatment industry for a short amount of time and then seeing the need, you know, maybe I was being a little bit too idealistic, <laughs> but I was like, maybe I could take 
the idea of like making videos, which was part of my new self-care thing. I learned how to make these videos. I could try to destigmatize things in law enforcement or, 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 you know, make a video that shows our understanding and support, telling our cops that we hear them and what they're going through to, with whatever is going on in society to try to improve their, their mental health and to let them know that they're not alone and that we're here for them. And I decided like, what if we had awesome people on a team that could take calls at 24 seven, right. And peer support them. And then if, if clinical intervention is needed, like create relationships with the right clinicians or treatment companies and get them there and then raise money if they don't have the right kind of insurance or funds um, to go through a program with the long-term goal of building our own campus and our own campus. Once we build it is going to have, you know, one part of it for chemical dependency and the other part for just trauma based on the places that I went through. And if they can't, if their insurance doesn't cover that, right. Then we're going to make sure that they go for free. We're trying to do everything we can to remove any single excuse to not get help to prevent suicide. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's given me purpose. Um, and I'm so grateful that there are the people now that are in my life and that are on this team who are mission oriented, doing the right things for the right reasons, who care, uh, as much as I do because they themselves have been impacted by trauma, you know? And so we're creating, I think a community of understanding and we know we can't do it alone. We have to work with other people. We want to work with other people as long as they're right-minded and want to do the right things for the right reasons. For me, the Resiliency Project has become my mission. And for as hard as it is to hear some of the things that we hear, it's making me stronger because, and, and every team member stronger because we're not going backwards. Right. We're learning how to deal with it, right? And there's something cathartic about being able to help someone when you're, you're hurting, you know? And so beautiful things have happened since then. And I think that um, with the grants that we're writing, with the amazing board we have, you know, uh, our peer support director, Kip Curtis, and Louis Jampavolo, who's our board member, and Cheyenne, who is an amazing human being and is essentially holds this thing together to my fiance who I met because life turned around and I started developing healthy, good relationships. And she's an angel <laughs> to my son. You, but this who, all started from you by yourself or was it, did you have an initial team uh, or? No, I, uh, I, I, I never had social media, right. My whole life. And then I, when I retired, I created one resiliency project because resilience is, what we need to survive. Right. And that's what depletes. So it called it the resiliency project. And then, um, I thought like, what if I turn this into a nonprofit and then, um, met the right people to help me get there. Cause I don't, I'm not a business guy. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't know what I was a cop. Right? right. And then, um, it just started to kind of like formula formalize as I was, as we were going. And it, it's definitely changed and molded based on the needs of what we were seeing. I mean, I was scared shitless. Like uh, my first, I'm like, oh my gosh, like someone actually reached out, right? I'm like, this is crazy. And there's a responsibility to know like how, you know, to when we say you're not alone, we better answer the phone, right? right? 
So like what to do. So then I, I, you know, we brought on an amazing trainer. I met, you know, through Kip, we met, uh, Charlie Gross is sergeant for the state, um, who, you know, does our training and just started meeting the right people. And, uh, I think at the end of the day, like we continue to evolve and try to improve because we're not perfect. Uh, we never will be, and we have to get better and grow our team. Um, and when we get about, you know, 50 to 60 peer supporters are, are, uh, the other plan that we have aside from the campus is to be able to, to respond, uh, at the request of an agency for mutual aid. If, if, if they don't have peer support or they get inundated anywhere around the country, if it's mass casualty, if it's whatever it is, right. Um, to be there for them, boots on the ground, even if it's just having a little tent and handing them water, right? Whatever needs to happen, but we have to start doing more and, and getting proactive. And so that's, that's kind of where we're at. I, I, um, yes, it was my idea. Uh, yes, I, I started it, but it wasn't me. <laughs> it was everyone around me who are just angels and blessings that actually make it work. Okay. So, um, how big is your team grown to today? Uh, I think we have 18, 19 on our team now. We have, as of last night, I think eight in the application process. We're, we just wrote a grant with this amazing psychological services company in Central California. And uh, I believe we're going to get that grant. And when we do, um, we're, we're going to be expanding and doing more crisis response around the country. Um, we're just, I don't want us to grow too fast. Um, we, I, we're trying to grow as fast as we can, but not so fast that we're bringing on the wrong people because I believe our cops, our first responders, all our, everyone that we serve deserves the best, um, that they can get. And I think it takes a certain kind of personality and profile to be able to withstand the kinds of things that we hear and, and be all in for the mission because, uh, and think about it, like how amazing it is and how blessing it is to have a team who, to have a team who, whether they're active or retired, have been through so much of their own stuff in their careers and their own personal lives to be able to answer a phone. So to, one of the questions I have is, is all of your team former first responders? Oh yeah. Everyone who's a, a peer supporter they're either active or retired. Uh, and I think most of them are now, uh, most of them are active. Um, so yeah, somebody, they have a, so when somebody reaches out, they have the confidence to know that the other person on the other end of that phone is going to be able to relate. You have to, right. Otherwise, how do you get the trust and the understanding? You know, if we just hired someone that worked at, you know, a, a department store, I think it's, it's not going to work. They need someone that they can trust and that knows that they've been where the person who's calling has been. And so, um, yeah, they're all, um, they're all first responders, most of them law enforcement. <laughs> I just know more cops, but right. we're trying to increase the, the fireside and dispatchers and stuff like that. Um, we have regular civilians on the team that are just regular, you know, volunteers that are just ardent supporters of the first responder community. Um, and then, you know, uh, other people who help and pitch in when they can, when we get inundated with calls. Since we started in uh, April 2020, we've 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 peer supported over 500, uh, and we also support their their spouses, right? Um, and as of right now, 
uh, we're supporting between, I think, 80 and 90 actively. Um, and we're telling them, like, you can call when 24-7 whenever you need. And so we are getting... Uh, we are getting to a point where we have to start bringing on a, a lot more um, to be able to sustain the calls that we're getting. And it's direct, directly attributable, I think, to what we're hearing and seeing around the country. If there are any first responders who, are, who want to help and participate, what can they do? Uh, we would be so grateful if they could apply um, and contact us uh, uh, through our website, www.theresiliencyproject.info. Um, do they need to come to the table with any special skills or? Yeah, we need, well, we preferably people who have been on the job for a while, right. Who are, you know, seasoned, uh, first responders, um, and, uh, who have, uh, sheer integrity, uh, compassion, understanding, um, who are good listeners. Um, and we need people who, are able to withstand the things that we're hearing and to be able to work as a team. Um, we just need people to do the right things for the right reasons. And we do need help. We need, we need a lot of uh, peer supporters and, and we need staff, right. To help support the, the, you know, endeavors that um, we're doing and, and the, you know, because we've got fundraisers and we've met like amazing people who are, who believe in the mission, who are helping us to raise money so that we can pay for any treatment modality that we can to keep these first responders alive. We don't take a salary. Uh, we don't take, uh, we're all volunteers. And so um, I think that that's, that's an important factor in this because they understand that this is not, this is bigger than us. This is bigger than me or you, this is bigger than our team. This is bigger than all of us. And, and I think that, uh, and that's an important factor for somebody who's in need. What's the, how do they reach out? They, uh, go through the website, uh, www.theresiliencyproject.info. And there's a get support button there. And then our peer support director or someone from the peer support team reaches out and they start the process. Is it via phone call, via text, via email? <laughs> Um, the actual conversation. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, the initial, uh, conversation, cause we ask sometimes like when's the best time to call? Cause maybe they're at work. They don't want to know that we're calling. <laughs> um, and so it, it'll either be a text an email or a phone call. Um, and most of us, but I always like, I FaceTime. <laughs> I don't know why that is. I always have to see who I'm talking to. Um, but when I move peer support, unless we're around them, you know, it's, it's on zoom or FaceTime. And, uh, if clinical intervention is needed, like I said, we'll, we'll find them a clinician and then peer support them as well while they're going through any sort of treatment. And, um, usually what happens is once they've gotten the help that they need, you know, they don't need as many calls or conversations because we, we have to like teach them to like learn how to live their lives now. Right. Um, so it's just a, it's just an amazing journey and process, but we're learning every day. I'm learning every day from the team and, you know, their experience. And I mean, these people are amazing. Uh, and so each of them make us better. So in wrapping it up, somebody listening to this feels that they need help. What's your piece of advice or what would be the last things you'd like to kind of wrap up with? 
it's okay to not be okay. Don't let any fear that you have at your agency prevent you from getting help. Know that if you can't get help from within the agency, there are other organizations like ours out there that are super passionate about helping them and to contact us and not wait before it gets so bad that they become self-destructive or start losing more than they have to because the more we wait, the more we lose. So contact us. You're not alone. Like we, we want our message out there. We want them to know that they can call us. We're confidential. We're free. We're 24 seven, you know, um, and that they're not alone and that they're heroes and they deserve the kind of support that we want to give them. And so, um, there's no, I'd say this in closing, like there's, in my opinion, in our organization's opinion, there's nothing more emblematic of strength. There's no greater example of being a warrior than being able to look within, recognize you need to get the help you need, and then actually doing it. That's being, that's strength. That's being a warrior because you're, you're overcoming the stigma that permeates throughout this profession that, that has unfortunately caused more loss than we ever needed to experience. So they're not alone. We love them. We appreciate their service. We're grateful for them and we're here for them. I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking your time to listen to the podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed it. Not only is the podcast available on audio platforms, but you can also watch it on YouTube at the Transition Drill Podcast channel. Please subscribe for future episodes. The best way you can help the show is by getting the word out. If you think somebody else might enjoy it, I would appreciate it if you would share it with them. Also, if you have the time, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a rating. I welcome your feedback, both positive and negative. You can also go to the website, transitiondrillpodcast.com. And through the contact tab, send a message directly to my email with any comments or suggestions. Thank you again, and I hope you tune in for the next one.